The year is 1197 and the long night has begun. When darkness falls, monsters walk the streets and alleys of the cities, congregating to plot and scheme. Fearing fire, the cross, and the lupines of the wild, the elder Cainites nonetheless seek to guide and control human civilization through centuries-old plots, while the younger vampires scrabble for power, influence, and prestige. Welcome to the world of Dark Ages. Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to episode two of the World of Darkness podcast. My name is Jacob. And I'm Peter. So, before we get started, Peter, how are things in Sweden? Uh, well, it's uh, hot, uh, and sometimes there's a lot of mosquitoes. So, if you spend uh, any time outside, uh, put on some bug repellent. Otherwise, your a- any uncovered surface is going to look kind of weird. <laughs> Uh, well, we've got a heat wave going on in Denmark, so I, I know how, how that goes. It, uh, at time of recording, it's the first day the kids are back in school, and there seems to be a Danish tradition of that uh, resulting in some of the hottest temperatures of the year. Um, so I've, I've just, I don't think there's been any part of my body that hasn't been sweating today. Ah. Uh, anyway, <laughs> um, the book we're looking at today is Book of Storyteller Secrets from 1996, written by... Wade Racine, Matt Burke, and J.D. Weicker, developed by Robert Hatch, and additional material by Richard Dansky and Robert Hatch. Uh, really, the only two names I recognize there are um, Richard Dansky and Robert Hatch. Um, so, uh, your opinion on the cover and the art in general? Well, um, I'm I'm not a big fan of the cover because it, it has the long-fingered kind of... I, I don't want to say alien-looking vampires that uh, are prominent in some arts, but it, it has the, the weird kind of thin... I'm guessing they're supposed to be uh, Nosferatu or perhaps Cappadocians, uh, but they, uh, I don't know. I just don't think that they look um, very gothic uh, and, and not very horrorful. Uh, there are some other um, pictures in the book that I think look a bit better, uh, especially considering the setting. Uh, but uh, yeah, they, they, I'm not a huge fan of the cover. Uh, no, I, I I'm I'm with you on the the cover. Uh, it seemed to be a very prevalent art style, uh, especially for Dark Ages back then, with the uh, the 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 very long, very thin fingers. And uh, when I first looked at it, I was wondering if some of the uh, the two um, uh, vampires in the back, if they were wearing ball gags, because it <laughs> looks a bit like that. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of pictures inside the book that I really like, uh, and lots that I think are okay. So all in all, I'd say that the art is, is uh, fairly good for this one. Um, so there's no intro story to dissect here, so we go straight to the introduction, which is about two pages worth. Um, the introduction states that this is very specifically a book for storytellers only, uh, before giving an overview of the chapters and a short how to use this book. Uh, what's your take on that? Uh, well, except the fact that I I'm starting to dislike the font that they have for the for the actual introductions the this sh- short flavor pieces uh, because it's it's kind of hard to read. Uh, yeah, you're right. I I thought the same thing. It's a very very difficult font to read. Yeah, it's one of those four um, medieval uh, um, kind of uh, gothic fonts uh, that it it looks cool when when you like go through it uh, through the list of fonts in in your word. Uh, processor, but when you actually have to read them, 
then uh, then it gets really tired really quick. Uh, I yeah, it's the the size uh, of of the individual letters makes it sort of flow together, mm. making it very difficult to distinguish. Yeah, uh, I I do like the uh, the the little um, picture up in the in the left corner. Um, of of the it, the page is supposed to look kind of like a uh, a page from a medieval uh, manuscript so they have like the illustrations in in around the corners uh, so you have a uh, skeletal woman being accosted by two monks which uh, is actually kind of neat yeah yeah it, uh, that that looks that looks uh, pretty cool um yeah, I, I mean, there's not much to say about the the intro as such. Um, I, if, when I looked at, it, I feel like chapters one and two they could uh, be for players as well as storytellers because it could give more background and ideas for deeper character creation. Um, I understand why chapters three and four are not for players, but we'll get to that when we look at uh, at the chapters. Yeah. Um, so uh, straight on to the chapters. Chapter one is geography and history, focusing on Europe and the Middle East, with notes on some areas beyond this. Uh, one thing that I find funny is uh, in the intro to the chapter, it specifically says that uh, this is intended to give storytellers and players an overview of geography, history, etc. After calling the book Storyteller Secrets and saying in the intro that it's for storytellers. Yeah. Well, well, you know uh, how players all are. They, they're, they're always trying to get their hands on the storytellers notes. So, Yeah, that is, that is true. That is true. Uh, interesting, the, the intro also gives the date 1197, uh, which I was unable to find in the core book. Uh, that might have just been my oversight, but I couldn't find it. So anyway, now the game has been given a firm date of reference rather than just saying 12th century. Yeah, so I, we know that it's supposed to be 1197. Yeah, I think they do mention it at some point, uh, but they, they don't really um, dwell on it. No. Uh, now, this information is the kind of thing I wish that had been in the core book. Uh, we get an overview of geography and history in Western Europe, Central Europe, Eastern Europe, the Middle East, and then points beyond, which includes our homeland of Scandinavia, mm -hmm. and then um, Africa beyond the Muslim parts. So if we look at the parts covering Europe and the Middle East first, um, what's, your, uh, what's your take on sort of the, the general uh, idea of it? Well, it's... Um it, it, it I, I find it um, not not bad actually I, I, it's it's a very colorful description of, of everything and and the way it's organized is that they, there's a short de description of the um, historical setting and and then how uh, local canines um, affect it um, what uh, w what I do find interesting is that um, it has the very much 90s uh, vampire, uh, feel that a lot of things has to be influenced by vampires. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that was that was the big thing back then. If 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 any of our listeners uh, are are not as as old as we are and do not remember uh, this time, the, they had re they really had this idea that that the big events were influenced by or even specifically perpetrated by vampires. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I also think it's it's very uh, good information. It's very general, but that's obviously due to the space given uh, and, and a very good overview of the nations with some canine information for storytellers who want this sort of thing instead of of um, of, of uh, figuring out their own. Though I think 
it's very stereotypical, the canine information that's given. It's very much the Ventrue are uh, the rulers, the Toreador are the artists, that sort of thing. They don't shake things up all that much, in my opinion, with with the the uh, thing that they mention, uh, the canines that they mention. Yeah, it's, it's very much um, by the book, quite literally. Um, and <laughs> and uh, just as an example of, of the... Um, uh, of of everything being influenced by vampires, uh, they they mention um, a, a group of bandits and robbers under the leadership of a canine named Robin Leland running around near the town of Nottingham. Uh, <laughs> so so not even poor Robin Hood uh, is is free from that curse. Uh, yeah, uh, they also uh, in that mention uh, Patricia of Bolingbroke. Uh, or Bolingbroke, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it. Mm. Um, which and and both of those names are, are names that are very important if you know the sort of of general um, meta plot and history of of the uh, um, of vampire because they become important in in the Anarch Revolt and everything. And in England, now that we're in England, they mention Mithras as the the Prince of London. I don't know if this is actually the first time we get a mention of Mithras as. Uh, as a, uh, a canite. Uh, I don't know if he's been mentioned before that, but this is definitely the first time in Dark Ages that, that he's in there. Yeah, I think so as well. Um, one thing that I I personally don't like is a lot of places like, say, um, Scotland and Russia and uh, other places, they mention uh, werewolf-specific speci things. In Scotland, they mention the worm. Uh, in uh, Isle the island uh, section, they mention uh, the Fianna, and in uh, the Russia section, they mention the Getafenris and the Silverfang, so Guru tribes. And I, I prefer in my um, uh, game of Vampire, unless I specifically set out to make a crossover, I rather prefer va uh, werewolves to be um, just generic lupines. And also, um, if, if I didn't know anything about uh, werewolf, uh, I would I would wonder what the hell they were talking about here. Yeah, I, I noted noticed that as well, and um, it's uh, they they also also mentioned uh, the Order of Hermes, which is a mage uh, group, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, yes, so they are. Uh, I I completely missed that actually. Yeah, uh, but yeah, they it, are. It's further down the when they I think they talk about Tremere at some point. But uh, oh yeah, but uh, yeah, li like you said, it's. Um, um, they they kind of suppose that uh, the reader or the user of this book uh, has uh, a more general knowledge about other games other than vampire, uh, and so if if you're not or you're not interested in in those a lot of these, like you said, a lot of these names can be a bit confusing because we really don't have any idea um, of who they are or or what they represent or why it makes sense that it's the Ghetto Fenris that. Uh, are, are numerous in, in Russia instead of some other werewolf tribe. Uh, yeah, and it, I mean, what, uh, the least they could do is put in a sidebar, uh, sort of giving a brief, like, uh, if, you, if you want to know more about uh, these things, check out werewolf, because you can't assume that someone who bought, buys this book knows uh, anything about werewolf at all. Yeah. So, um, so let's see what else. Um, the Iberia section um, generally annoyed me a bit because it reinforces the idea that all Muslim Canaanites are Asamites, uh, which interestingly, uh, later they, they then, uh, when we get to the Holy Land, we, uh, they, they specifically mention other clans as fighting on the Muslim side of things. 
So, so in, in one, in one, on one side we have the uh, the unfortunate once again uh, all Muslims are Asamites, but then they they break it up later. Um, so it's a bit it's a bit schizophrenic <laughs> yeah. in a way. Um, it, it is. It's it's um, um, like we kind of mentioned earlier. It's it's a very um, basic um, level of 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 historicity in this and and. Uh, like you said, that making all of the uh, all of the Iberian um, Asamites uh, Muslim is is kind of like the the easy way out and kind of stereotypical, um, yeah. and and it kind of shows that they haven't really done uh, that much much research into uh, well well into in into the, the the history of the time. Like for example, they when they when they speak of Scotland, they they. Uh, completely missed the fact that even even uh, still at, at this time uh, there was a huge Norwegian influence or Norse uh, at least influence uh, on uh, the the northern parts of Scotland, um, which uh, was uh, originated from from back when the the Vikings and Norsemen invaded and and they founded the uh, the city and the kingdom of Dublin and most of the Hebrides islands um, were still. Um, under uh, Norwegian influence, um, and if if you look at a map of of Scotland, there's uh, way up in the north, uh, almost the the northernmost tip of Scotland is called Sutherland, uh, and that name <laughs> means uh, it it comes from the Old Norse Sudderland, which means the Southland. Because if you look up a, uh, of a map of Europe, that part is south of Norway. Uh, where the uh, settlers and and conquerors came from, so it would have been interesting to if they had um, more details like that, because that could explain uh, like a connection between vampires in Scotland and uh, vampires in in Scandinavia, for example. That that you you actually have this uh, connection um, back then. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think there are uh, there are a few missed opportunities. I realized that they didn't have as much space, but I I think there are some places where they they missed some some uh, things that, as you mentioned here, could make for some really interesting story hooks. For example, in uh, in the area, um, uh, sorry, the section where they talk about France, I don't feel that they go into enough detail on just how weak Fren the French monarchy's power really is at this time. And they could also talk more about the Champagne fairs and Flanders as this emerging uh, economic powerhouse. Yeah. Um, and in Russia, I feel that they had a missed opportunity with uh, Novgorod, which at this point was really a center of trade with Western uh, merchants traveling first to um, Gotland, uh, to Visby, and then from there they met up and then they traveled to Novgorod, uh, which is really, once again, a really cool um, opportunity for, for story uh, hooks. But they do have some really cool story hooks in there as, as well. Uh, in the Holy Roman Empire, um, they have a very, very cool idea in the Burgundy section about canines disappearing outside uh, the cities of Marseille and Nice. I don't know if that was ever followed up on, but uh, those are the kind of things where I see those things and I go, "Ooh, I can use that. I can use that for some interesting, uh, interesting stories." Yeah. Um, 
and also uh, also in the Holy Roman Empire uh, in in the area um, of, of the kingdom of Naples and Sicily they talk about uh, a noble being influ influenced by the Bali so so they have some really cool story hooks um, so it's it's I, I would say that this part of it is is generally good but they they, they do miss a few things because they are being as general as they are yeah um and then we come to here there be dragons the section of areas outside of europe and the muslim world uh, this covers us as we mentioned africa and scandinavia now let me start by saying i love the fact that the section on denmark and scandinavia does not mention sweden and then i turn it over to you peter <laughs> well they they uh, they do mention sweden uh, a bit uh, later on um when they're talking about magical swords so uh, yeah, so they, yeah, didn't, they didn't miss it completely, but yeah, <laughs> I um, I don't know. Uh, li like you mentioned, and and I was going to bring that up as well. That that um, it the way that um, the area is portrayed is that it's it's uh, a, a frozen wasteland up in the north, and it's very uncivilized, and and there's really no one living there, and. From from a vampire point of view, I can I can buy that because there really aren't enough people to support uh, a vampire population. Uh, exactly, that was one of the things that we touched on on when we talked about the 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 core book that you know we we in Scandinavia at this point did not have anything even resembling big cities. Yeah, but then again, as as you mentioned, uh, that it was uh, it was still part of a very important trading route to Novgorod and and the fur trade to uh, um, well from northern parts of, of Scandinavia and, and from Finland uh, and the lumber trade as well was the fish trade from uh, Norway was very important yeah, exactly. as well so so it's not like and it, uh, it, it's not like the, it's it's just I don't know the the equivalent of north of the wall in Game of Thrones that it's just a bunch of of uh, um, fur-clad savages running around. Uh, it, it was actually a fairly cultured area uh, and yeah. and important when it comes to trade and and Scotland was also very important for the same reason because Scotland had uh, you had trading routes uh, by sea to, for example, uh, Norway as you mentioned. So yeah, yeah. So it's 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 a bit. I don't know if it's because um, the the writers or the authors are American and and they have kind of a Eurocentric or uh, Anglo-centric view, or or if they just wanted to portray this this really world of darkness version of of Scandinavia and and the rest of the world. Yeah. I don't. I also don't understand why it says Denmark and Scandinavia because Denmark is in Scandinavia. Yeah. Though obviously that had been the area of Scandinavia that had been most influenced by Christian Europe at this point. Mm. Uh, but still, I mean, I also don't know understand why they leave out Sweden because Sweden had some very interesting stuff going on at this point. Um, so yeah, yeah, um, and all of Denmark at this point is civilized Christian and and should be considered you know part of Europe, not points beyond. And I'm assuming uh, that that at least the southern parts of Sweden would be the same. Yeah, it it would have, and and um, uh, what I did like was that they mentioned that um, Denmark is preparing for a, um, uh, a campaign in the south and seize more land for for uh, for the kingdom, 
uh, and they kind of hint at the Danish um, crusades in the Baltics. Yeah, uh, which yeah, yeah. Those were um, those those are coming in uh, in uh, in the next decades. From from this point on, we we got. Uh, we got busy <laughs> in the Baltics. Yeah, and and so did the Swedes. So so you have the, um, you you have the clash between Christianity and and paganism even up here. Uh, and like you mentioned, it, it is a bit of a missed op- opportunity because uh, since a lot of this uh, this book focus on on the clash between Christianity and and other religions and how that affects vampires. Uh, they could have done a lot more with the fact that in in the coming decades there are um, a, a bunch of of crusades in the Baltics, uh, which which is an opportunity for uh, maybe for for vampires to establish themselves there, even though they they haven't been there before, um, or or perhaps that could have been used as a way for the very first vampires to arrive in say sweden or um the baltic uh, well i would say that the baltics probably have have timichi already uh yeah but uh, yeah i don't know maybe that timichi had to run away from uh f- from latvia and to sweden i don't know that could have been an option yeah, there are a lot of options. Um, one final thing I would say about this is I absolutely like the followers of Jormungandr, which is a, a splinter group or, or subsect of the followers of Set that um, have come here and worship Jormungandr, the Midgard serpent, though I would say that uh, Nilhok, uh, the, uh, the serpent that gnaws at the roots of the world tree, would probably be have, have been a more appropriate serpent to follow since that is that more seems to be in tune with what the the followers of set represent but i I just like this idea of a group of setites being in scandinavia and latching on to the scandinavian myths of destructive serpents that that was that's just something that appeals to me yeah i i uh, i caught on uh, on to that as well and it's not as far-fetched as one would think because uh, even back in the what we call the viking age uh, the Vikings uh, traded a lot, and the, the Swedish Vikings went down on the rivers down to uh, Constantinople, uh, and and even further, most likely. And so they brought back um, not n- not only goods, but most likely also um, people uh, and uh, a bit of culture as well. Uh, there's um, in the old Viking city of Birka in um, uh, in the middle of Sweden. Uh, there has been um, uh, a Buddha statue from from India <laughs> uh, that has been found among uh, other um, artifacts. Uh, so it's it's not as far fetched as as you can imagine. That uh, no, I mean there's there's Viking graffiti in the um, Hagia Sophia. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> so um, so so I don't know. That that could be an explanation for why uh, there w- there would be a bunch of of setites. Uh, uh, going to to Scandinavia, Scandinavia and settling down. Um, they they don't really mention where in Scandinavia. I think where they um, where where the um, no no they they don't. I I would think that they would be concentrating on the closest thing to big cities, so something like uh, Heiterbu, uh, Ribe. Uh, I don't know what the big uh, areas uh, in Sweden is other than Visby, but in Norway, places like Bergen would be appropriate. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Africa, um, or more appropriately, Africa south of uh, the Muslim territories, mm. they mention Ethiopia, 
um, where just a quick note, I would probably have preferred if they used the name Aksum. Uh, but I love that we actually get an acknowledgement of the mighty, rich, and powerful nations of Sub-Saharan Africa, yeah. which are far too often forgotten at this point. Yeah. And and especially since um, it, it Christianity wasn't only um, a European religion; it's uh, it spread uh, really far down. And and the fact uh, that I also like is is that Ethiopia. Um, were on a much more friendly base with with other Muslim con or with Muslim countries than the European Christian countries. Uh, so uh, so the fact that they ag acknowledge the the greatness of Ethiopia back then is uh, is a great plus in my book. Yeah, that that was that's an area that um, I really think could could be expanded on, and they do that later. Mm. So chapter two is life and death in the dark ages. Something I think really should have been in the core book. Uh, this involves information that allows the players to better grasp uh, the character's mindset and allows the storyteller to bring the setting uh, alive. Uh, so first we have an introduction on how much historic realism you want in the game, which I like. Uh, now I obviously prefer not to make it a fantasy game, but if other people want to play it like that, I mean, I have absolutely no complaints. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and in a way, you kind of have to make it a fantasy game, even even if you don't include uh, werewolves and fae and ghosts and and mages or whatever, um, and and they kind of acknowledge that as well that it's I it is a game where blood sucking corpses run around, um, being kind of angsty. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I I think you kind of have to have a level of, uh, uh, not suspended disbelief, but like kind of yeah, this is this is what works in this world. Yeah. So this is a good one. And then we start off with a section on cities in this area, uh, area, mm. <laughs> era. Uh, what do you have to say about this? Well, it it kind of goes back to what we mentioned in the first episode that there aren't really enough people to support um, any significant significant number of um, of vampires, pretty much uh, anywhere. Um, and yeah, the the the. The, the general description is um, the, the, at least the feel of, of a medieval city I think they, they've done well enough there are some uh, small things like for instance that they mentioned the, uh, the gibbet being a, a, a rusted cage or a cage where they leave the, uh, the bodies of executed criminals to, to rot to as warning to others that wasn't really done that much in the 12th century it, uh, it becomes popular uh, a bit later uh, and especially is very popular during the age of piracy when when you hang pirates um, to yeah basically to warn of others yeah exactly um, yeah they I mean it's it's good but there's some of the description that's just um, that seems to be uh, a bit too early. For example, they, they when they describe the cities like, ooh, imagine these 50-foot walls. Yeah. Far from all cities at this, po at this point had walls. Mm. A lot of them had uh, earthen ramparts instead. And 50-foot walls is not something you're going to see on a lot of cities outside of Constantinople. Yeah. Um, and if we're getting extremely nitpicky, because they uh, talk about the round towers of the city walls, towers at this time were square, yeah. not round. Yeah. Um, and, and then people will say, does it really matter? Well, it can be used to show the passage of time. Mm. Uh, as time goes by, you can tell your characters, ooh, now round towers are in vogue. <laughs> yeah, look, um, Gothic Gilso archers. Sorry. 
What? Gothic arches instead of uh, Roman or Norman arches. Exactly. Um, Gilsh also described uh, in a bit of an, ac- uh, an anachronistic way, uh, because at this t- uh, time uh, only craft guilds really existed, service guilds and merchant guilds, they come uh, about half a, a century later. Mm. But in general, it's very solid. And um, in the section where they talk about where do you set your game, the questions that they ask, uh, I think they're great. Uh, they're great help in creating a fully thought-out setting for the game. So it's it's good stuff for um, for game masters, for storytellers to really think about. Well, what is the area that I'm setting my game in like? Yeah, um, the uh, yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, I I have some. Uh, opinions on on how they describe um, clothes and and stuff like that. Ah but yes, I, yeah. <laughs> I I I made a note of that <laughs> uh, further down. Yeah. Um, that that um, you p- would probably have uh, have some uh, some thoughts about that. So let's just let's go to that straight away and and let's hear what you have to say on their description of medieval clothing. Yeah. Well, there. Mainly two things, uh, and we can go in. We can start with that, and then we can go in, go into to the way food is described as well. Uh, but uh, th- the fact that they mention that that linen uh, is worn only occasional uh, is kind of weird because uh, a, a short history for the uninitiated. Uh, basically, if you were a person living in Europe in the year eleven ninety seven. What you would be wearing were uh, underwear, which would be some kind of um, uh, of uh, pants or uh, boxer short-like uh, pieces of clothing called brace, and an undershirt. If you were a woman, that shirt would probably be a lot longer, uh, but both of these would be made of linen. Uh, and the reason for this is that linen can very easily be washed, uh, so... Um, and uh, unlike wool, which would be the other material that you would be wearing. So you would be wearing linen closest to r- the body to soak up sweat, uh, and also because it's a lot more comfortable. Uh, on top of that, you would be wearing wool clothes, because those can be dyed in fanciful colors, and colors are cool. Um, yep. And maybe some, some uh, leather items like uh, shoes and belts uh, and fur, if you could afford it. Uh, but the fact that they mentioned that uh, you that that wool is kind of like the general um, apparel is is kind of weird um, because you you wouldn't be wearing just wool because first of all you can't really wash it um, so it gets a lot dirtier it's a lot easier to wash a linen shirt uh, and and also it would be uncomfortable uh, yeah as someone who's worn wool for costumes and stuff that stuff is hot yeah it is um and and so you would of course if you were working out in the fields uh strip down to uh, as much or as little as modesty would allow and and you can actually see this in in medieval paintings uh that there are people uh working in their underwear basically out when they're uh, harvesting uh, in the fields and stuff like that there are a lot of um um of, of illustrations in in manuscripts and stuff like that I I also on this uh, topic I also dislike the fact that they mention that um, uh, the the people of the late twelfth century know little of the value of clean clothes. Well, they did, but they didn't necessarily have 
the means to to wash them because if you have a piece of garment and you don't take care of it and remove as much dirt as you can it's going to uh, distress and uh, deteriorate deteriorate a lot easier so you would be taking care of clothes um, and and trying to mend them and, and keep them as, as neat and tight as possible uh, and you can see that um, good sturdy pieces of, of clothing uh, could be handed down for generation and if you look in in inheritances and, and wills from this area you can see that uh, people are, are actually uh, being given like the the three fancy cloaks that grandpa used to wear uh, oh, that is a very very cool little piece of historic information the wills of the time mm. that that this is a way to to figure out stuff about clothing i like that a yeah. lot i didn't know that yeah well that's that's one way because uh, those are are some of the few actually written documents that that we have from the time um they do go on to to mention um, silk and and fancier uh, outfits or or uh, materials as well so they kind of um again it's it's a very generalized and and shallow uh, look uh, on medieval life uh, which can work but it's it's um, it's not really a good source for for information uh, and what one uh, must be aware of is that uh, fashion and uh, um, and styles and everything like that that could vary very much from place to place and just within a few mm. years so just because uh, the the people in london uh, at this time wore something in the year 1197 uh, the people in paris a few years later is might not wear the same thing hmm. uh one question that i actually have for you that i hmm. uh, just popped into my head uh we tend to associate cotton with uh the american south uh but uh, from what i uh, seem to remember cotton did exist in in uh, the, this area at this time didn't it yeah it did but it wasn't uh widely used because it was uh it had to be imported from uh from the middle east and from egypt mm. uh and yeah. which meant that it was expensive and it was um I it's a very time consuming and resource consuming um, um product to make so since you had linen and flax and and hemp and other uh, similar materials uh, it was it wasn't usually used uh, because to um, w some of the things that it was actually used for was was for padded armor because uh, to get fibers from cotton uh, it's it's quite um, uh, resource demanding so and uh, so so you but but you could get the, the thick wads of uh, mm. of cotton that you would could sew into uh, into layers in um, in fabric armor basically uh, yeah but yeah it, it wasn't really that popular uh, at least not in in 1197 it uh, it would come around like in in a few hundred years but there, all yeah. right so the only thing I I really noted uh, on on the section of food because I knew that was your mm. area of expertise is I love that the Ventru rather than the Toreador are the masters of fashion oh, yeah. at this time. Oh, yeah. They have a note about that, yeah. and I think that's really cool. And I think it actually sounds rather realistic the way that they describe it. Yeah, uh, because it it would be a way to show your status and to show you that you're someone who who has money to. 
uh, not necessarily waste, but you have if you have money to spend on fashion and not just uh, for everyday wear, then you are a person of influence. Mm. Yeah. So if we continue in this um, section of of the chapter that was called the medieval aesthetic, mm. um, and and I love it. It's the section about uh, how to make the setting come alive with comments on food, daytime versus nighttime activity, yeah. and clothes, as as we've covered. Mm. Um, so what what other uh, comments do you have on this? Well, uh, I I like the fact that they uh, they have a list of common food for the medieval society and under seafood they include uh, seals and dolphins uh, because yeah. uh, seals and other sea living mammals were considered uh, fish for uh, when it came to Lent and fasting because you weren't allowed to eat meat but you were allowed to eat fish. Uh, exactly and and I don't know if, if it was before or after 1197 but it was around this time that they also classified uh, barnacle geese as fish um because the clergy absolutely loved eating goose yeah. um and so they uh, they decided that well the name barnacle geese comes from the fact that they actually thought that the geese came out of barnacles <laughs> and barnacles were in the water so barnacle geese were obviously fish. fish yeah um, obviously <laughs> uh, what so. what i don't like about the food chapter though is that they basically say that uh, well there, there are two things first of all they they mentioned that they're um there is no method of preserving meat, fish, bread, or beverages. So uh, people are forced to coat their food with liberal helpings of salt, spices, and garlic to hide the taste of mold and rot. Uh, yeah, completely no. missing the fact that salt is a way of preserving meat, along with, exactly, with drying or smoking and a lot of other ways uh, of yeah. <laughs> preserving meat. I mean, one of the one of the things that uh, one of the the big trade routes of this time was between um, northern Germany and uh, sort of the middle of, of Norway, the, the Baron area, where they produce stockfish, which is mainly cod that has been hung to dry in the cold, dry air. And the amount of stockfish that was imported to uh, northern um, the northern parts of, of Central Europe at this time were staggering. Yeah. And of course, Denmark um, had uh, almost cornered the market in salted herring. Mm. Uh, the big uh, markets for salted herring were in uh, what is today um, the island of Zealand and then Scania in, in Sweden. Yeah. Uh, so salting and, and drying and smoking, as you mentioned. Mm. And also, if, if the people had to use spices to cover the taste, um, they would soon you know bankrupt themselves yeah. on spices because those things are expensive sure yeah. garlic isn't all that expensive no. but most spices beyond that were were yeah. very very expensive as i think most people are aware spices in the middle ages were were quite the the valuable thing yeah uh, and they they also mentioned that um peasants basically just eat vegetables because uh, because noble people uh, would only eat um, meats and cheese uh, and that is, that's not really true either. Uh, poor people could eat some meats uh, and and some like cheese, and it's not like uh, the the upper class didn't eat um, and didn't eat vegetables or, or grains or stuff like that. So uh, no, you would I mean, include a very very a very very staple food of this time were peas. Yeah, because peas last yeah. a long time. Yeah. So even the noblest of nobles 
would in wintertime be eating pea soup. Yeah. They didn't have a choice. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, and of course, as as another fu- fun fact, all those weird Scandinavian delicacies that we have, like ludofisk and pickled herring and stuff like that, surströmming, uh, is of course ways to preserve the food. Uh, yeah, for, exactly. For very long periods of time. Yeah, um, and if if you don't know what things like surströmming and ludofisk are, um, consider yourself lucky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 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 uh, preserved fish. But it's um, it's not for everyone. Let's put it like yeah. that. There, there are videos um, on YouTube of people trying it. Uh, I, I suggest that anyone who is curious about actually tasting it, watch those videos before you try it yourself. Yeah. Um, but in, in general, I mean, uh, we can nitpick this section. But other than I think they missed the mark quite a bit on, on clothing, as you mm. uh, explained, it's... It's it's a good thing and it's something that should uh, that should be here. Uh, if we back up a bit um, before this section and after city, they talked about what they called the wasteland, the open country. Which I I don't know why they chose the term the wasteland. I don't know if they were inspired by poetry. Yeah, I think uh, so. This this section starts by reminding the reader just how difficult it is for most Canaanites to survive outside big, big settlements, and I really like that. Um, in this section, you know, apart from the fact that highwayman is is somewhat anachronistic term. Yeah. Uh, for this for this time, uh, it's a short section, but it's very solid and it gives good useful information. Yeah, um, yeah, it's uh, it's good to remind people that um, uh, traveling, especially for vampires at uh, this time, and uh, they weren't something you undertook easily. No, and and not even. I mean, obviously, vampires have the big problem of of traveling. Uh, they have to travel by night unless they can be transported in some kind of sunproof um, uh, caskets or something. Mm. Uh, but we do get uh, later a, a short section on travel, a very useful section, I feel, for modern people, because you can understand what travel times are in the Middle Period, yeah. in the Middle in the middle Ages period, Medieval period, mm. um, how fast people travel, though obviously, and they do say that it varies quite a bit, are you traveling on... Uh, an old Roman road, are you going cross-country, uh, are you mounted, are you walking, though in many cases there aren't that big of a difference between being mounted and walking other than the horse getting tired rather than you. Yeah. Um, so so I, I always like this, this travel information because I think a lot of modern people don't really realize uh, the, um, the challenges faced uh, by travelers in, uh, in medieval times. Yeah, yeah I, I completely agree. Um, most ordinary people didn't travel very far uh, and and that's why things like uh, county fairs and and feast days and holidays were such a big thing because those were amongst the few times where you could actually go to some other place except the the town or village where you grew up uh, unless you were going on a pilgrimage uh, or in this uh, era a crusade which had its own um, dangers, <laughs> uh, obviously. Uh, so, yeah. so yeah, it's uh, I like that part. Um, yeah, and then you know, there's a bit about uh, disease. You know, it's a good information that helps set the stage of the time. Mm. Um, and then we end the chapter with a medieval lexicon. Uh, my take on that is pretty take it or leave it. I mean, um, there are a few uh, wo- uh, places where I went. Ah, I'm not quite sure about that one, but. Uh, if if you know if there are people who who want to uh, to use that, I'm fine with it. 
I I have no strong feelings about that. Yeah, exactly. I I agree. It's it's a take it or leave it. And and once again, it's most of these terms are uh, terms that would be words that would be used in uh, a somewhat English setting. Uh, so uh, uh, one would uh, again be aware that this isn't the words that a, a German would use, for example. Yeah, but I, I, I mean, I think I think most people would 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 understand this this being a book written in in the English language. Yeah. Uh, so we go on to t- chapter three, which is storytelling in the Dark Ages, and I think this gives some really solid advice that holds up to this day, and that even experienced storytellers can get some benefit from. I feel like once again, as we mentioned uh, in the first episode, this is where White Wolf often shines. Yeah. So, uh, did you have any specific thoughts about this? Uh, this area uh, well we, um, we we have mentioned it before and and it's the, um, uh, the setting of, of having perhaps a bit too much information from from other white wolf games like I have no idea what a get of Fenris is so if if I haven't read the werewolf books so why would exactly. you include it in, in this um, and what I also kind of dislike is that um, it it kind of makes um, the game dependent on on the or, or rather the setting dependent on you as a storyteller or you and and your friends as a group wanting to have werewolves and face and mages and stuff like that. And uh, what I will what I'm missing from it is. Uh, what if I don't want all of these other supernatural things? What if I I want to focus mostly on uh, on the actual vampires and perhaps not have as much um, werewolves, for example? Uh, why then? Why wouldn't uh, wouldn't I want to go to Scandinavia, Russia? If if the werewolves uh, isn't the reason why I'm not going there, then mm. there should be something else. Yeah, yeah, that I I think you're right. I mean, uh, as I mentioned before, I I'm not really a big fan of them including uh, stuff from other game lines, especially um, when they don't include any kind of information as to this is where you can find out what these things uh, mean. Mm. Um, I need to mention a, sh- a sidebar on page fifty nine about music. Uh, as someone who listens to historic music, I think this is way too short. Though obviously in uh, nineteen ninety six there weren't as many bands doing historic music but i would suggest if if someone wants um information uh about uh, good music for a dark ages game uh they can hit us up on on uh on the facebook page that we have i will certainly give my favorites and i know you listen to some historic music as well right yeah um and and not necessarily uh 12th central music but if you if anyone wants something that is uh uh, feeding for the mood, then we'll we'll be happy to help. Yeah, and and I mean the music that I listen to, some of it is is definitely uh, around this time, twelfth century, and mm. and and even even earlier. There is there is some music that survived from from that yeah. period, uh, and it's really some of my favorite music. Mm. Now the last chapter is friends, enemies, and Mich- uh, Michelini. Uh, we start with a section on ghouls, specifically how various clans use ghouls. Uh, I like this though. It does seem a bit odd that this is in a book called Storyteller's Secrets because it seems like the sort of thing that could be nice for players to read to get some ideas for how their character's clan uses ghouls. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, also, the Ravnos section is mercifully uncomplicated <laughs> in terms of racial stereotyping. I, I, I had to mention that because it doesn't say, ooh, the Ravnos embrace, you know, traveling quote-unquote gypsies yeah. and things like that it, it's actually not as bad as the Ravnos were presented in the core book which is nice to see yeah i i agree um i do find it a bit peculiar that they mentioned that uh the gangrel don't usually create ghouls because if if you look at how they are portrayed they are uh supposedly uh, one of the clans that are actually in, in connection with um with mortals uh, and so I would say that it would probably make uh, more sense for a lone uh, gangrel having uh, uh, a bunch of, of uh, mortal uh, ghouls around and maybe family members or maybe um, his his viking crew or whatever uh, that that they bring bring along uh, because they realize that they're the only uh, vampire uh, around for for miles and miles and miles so they might as well hook up with um, uh, with these um, friendly pirates or whatever yeah uh we didn't have the section on gargoyles i don't think this was the first time gargoyles were mentioned i think they had appeared in vampire on up until this point but i'm not a hundred percent sure i didn't actually check uh, but Peter, what's your take on this bloodline? And then I'll give mine afterwards. Yeah, I, I have mixed feelings about him because uh, <laughs> I, for for one reason, I feel that, uh, again, we have we have too many different kinds of, of vampires and, um, and, and ghouls and, and whatever. Uh, and um, it's, I, I could do without them. I, d I don't feel that the Tremere really needs them. Uh, but what uh, what I do think that is is that for what they are, they've actually managed to do them quite um, un <laughs> unbad, so to speak. I would I wouldn't call them good, <laughs> uh, and I would um, I would r wouldn't really um, I wouldn't really want to see them in a game uh, being played or, or play a significant 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 part. I would use them more as uh, as a storytelling device. Uh, that this is something that everyone knows that the the evil Tremere has that uh, if you venture into the lairs you're gonna be torn apart by stone statues coming alive something like that mm. well that fits very closely with my uh, opinion of the gargoyles I really like the idea of the Tremere experimenting saying okay we are under constant attack by the Tsmish and their allies uh, we need some kind of defense against the Tsimish, but I do not like the idea of this being a bloodline of vampires. Uh, and one of the reasons for that is actually that one thing I think the Tremere would be trying to get is some kind of daylight defense, because the Tsimish uh, have these very powerful ghouls, the Schlachta and the Vosh, the ghouls that have been empowered with vicissitude. Yeah. So so the Tremere would, would, I feel, be looking for something to protect them during the day. So I don't like this... Um, the gargoyles being a bloodline of vampires also like you said there are there are just too many of those i don't think it fits i think it makes them potentially too powerful um but if they have to exist i like that they are mentioned in the storyteller secrets uh because familiarity breeds contempt the idea that you said that uh, instead of people knowing oh the gar uh, the tremere have this bloodline of gargoyles that got them um rather but but the idea uh, more being like if you attack the Tremere you will be torn apart by stone statues mm. that that sounds better 
so um so yeah uh and then we have the magic section legendary creatures divination magical herbs alchemy and for lack of a better term magical items talismans relics and blades um so i'm going to give my opinion on this section and then i'll turn it over to you peter um i i, I think you might have a dissenting opinion to me but we'll see <laughs> yeah um, so it's probably because I come from playing Ars Magica and love that game, but I really, really love this section. Uh, I mean, I made a book for Storytellers Vault that is basically this, but just containing more of mm. it. I will say I don't agree with all the choices here. I think the Blood Rose is on the silly side, and I don't think the Dragon fits into it, for example. But in general, I like my Dark Ages setting to reflect some of what people of the time uh, believed and and yes i know that their beliefs about vampires which was mainly confined to parts of eastern europe were different from what uh, vampire the game presents but i like the more um not magical but certainly supernatural setting where the ideas of the people of the time exist but what did you make of this chapter or this section of the chapter yeah i i agree that they have a section that uh, uh that kind of aligns with uh, what people uh, of the time believed um i i don't i i think that the examples that that they use like for example a basilisk and a dragon uh are i don't know i i like i, I i'm not completely against the idea of there actually being a dragon somewhere in in the medieval world of darkness but i'm having a very hard time figuring out how that would actually uh, be useful uh, in a story involving vampires I'm, i i can't figure out a good scenario where i would actually use one as a storytelling no, device same here same uh, here <laughs> so so i would rather have seen that i i do like that they include fake cattle that is basically uh, cattle that um join a herd of of ordinary uh, beasts or cows or, or sheep or whatever and then they lead them away into the night to be taken by by fey or trolls or whatever uh, and i would I would rather see more of that, like have the the huldra or or the um, the house gnomes and and things like that. That, w that would actually that's actually a bit more uh, everyday or or for the common folk. Uh, that could stray a bit into changeling territory, but if if you're going to have like the the fantastical stuff, I'd rather see something like that that can actually be useful um, instead of a griffin or a dragon or or a sphinx i don't know it's yeah, yeah. i also I, I like the idea of of you mentioned the 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 huldra uh which i think a lot of people outside of scandinavia is not going to know what uh, is but if the storyteller researched that and then sprung it on players who like us had very little knowledge of it and then basically gave them the very very uh short uh scandinavian folklore version of it they would be in a situation where they really didn't know what they were up against yeah. and i think that could add a a very interesting sort of uncertainty and even um frightening aspect to a, a chronicle um I, I i like introducing things where the players just as much as the characters are going yeah. i really don't know what's going on yeah. here um so yes um 
It's time to judge this book then on our two criteria, as a book for historical gaming and as a games supplement. How do you think that it holds up? Well, uh, on the historical criteria, we've, we've kind of uh, uh, <laughs> played our hands already. It's, uh, it's a very yeah. generalized um, book uh, and feel. And uh, again, I, I agree with the fact that I'd rather see most of the, the historical information in the core book. And then you could have uh, a, a setting book that could actually go deeper into details because there is too much generalizations there are some um, more or less stereotypes uh, and um, and wronghoods about how people dressed and how people ate uh, and how people behaved uh, so yeah it's it, it gets um, it get points for for effort but it doesn't really uh, go all the way um, that's that's my opinion on that part. Yeah, um, I, I tend to agree. Um, it's very much a product of its time. Um, as, as you also mentioned, and I, as I mentioned in the beginning, there's stuff here that I feel should be in the core book. And I don't know if this is a result of people still being caught in the player versus game master mindset of say Dungeons and Dragons, where you need to have secret information in a book that you then say, well, uh, the player shouldn't have this book rather than simply having sections in the core book where you tell the players, okay, so this this has some secret stuff in it that I would prefer you not read and then trust your players. Yeah. I think it's actually, there's there's um, a, yeah, a, 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 an idea that was prevalent at this time that, that there was an antagonistic relationship between the player players and the game master. Um, I So I think that um there's um, you said most of it um uh it it's it's very superficial later books cover uh, the same ground and then goes into more detail but that is spread over uh, a few books rather than just one so i say i think for 94 pages it's actually good value for money uh though obviously it's for the first edition of the game uh so the game mechanics are outdated but i mean if if um if people want to uh, to get uh, their hands on what's in here. Uh, I, I actually think that it could be uh, an, an interesting uh, addition to your uh, to your Dark Ages collection. Um, so, any last words from you, Peter? Uh, no, I I think I've said enough already. To be perfectly honest, <laughs> uh, it's um, uh, yeah, it, it was a fun read through, uh, but there uh, there are a lot of things that won't be making it into my games. Okay, excellent. Next time, we will be looking at Constantinople by night. So, it's goodbye from me, Jacob. And from me, Peter. Farewell, and see you next time. Bye.